Lord Jesus, thank you that whoever is an under-shepherd in your church, yet you are still our good shepherd. Lord, please um, take my words this morning, let them be yours, and Lord, would, would, yeah, would, you, would you speak what, what is needful for your people this morning? For your glory we ask. Amen. Let me ask you, um, can you remember from Jill's all-age slot 15 minutes ago or whenever it was, what were some of the things that we have in common with sheep? Anyone feeling brave want to just shout them out? Okay, yeah. Stupid. Stupid. <laughs> we think we're stronger than we are. Okay. We follow, yeah, we follow other people. We, we might not follow the right, the right people. Okay. Let me... Um, so as Dan said, we're, we're going to trace this theme of sheep and shepherds through scripture. But as, I, as, I, as we do so, I want to just paint a little picture of what it's like being a sheep in the Middle East, which is slightly different to in Britain, and is probably quite important for the way that we read and we understand <coughs> the different ways the Bible talks about us and God's people like sheep, and God as like a shepherd. So first thing to note is probably that Unlike in this country, well, maybe a bit like Wales or Scotland, um, <laughs> they spend most of their lives on the margins of society. So sheep in the Middle East don't get to spend a lot of time in nice kind of green, lush, rolling hills and fields by rivers because all the best agricultural land in the Middle East is kept for growing crops. Sheep go on the mountains, the slightly desert kind of places on the edge of society because basically nothing else can survive there. Um, and that means that they might not even have as much grass as, say, your average sheep on the Brecon Beacons or Snowdonia. The shepherd is constantly having to move them along each day, maybe several times a day, because the grass is thin, there aren't many shrubs, it's okay in the spring when there's been some rain, but the rest of the year, slim pickings. The best they might get is at the end of the harvest in the summer where they get to go and eat the stubble off the fields in the good agricultural land. So life, life as a sheep in the Middle East is harder, I would say, than, than being a sheep in this country or in Wales or Scotland. It's also more dangerous. They, they don't just have sheep rustlers as, as foes to contend with. Um, the, the Bible speaks of wolves, it speaks of lions, it speaks of bears, it speaks of leopards out to get them. Also, I suspect big birds, birds of prey like vultures who might swoop down on the lambs and try and peck out their eyes and then eat them. Grim, hey? <laughs> <laughs> and then there's much more extreme, there are more extremes in the weather, kind of extreme cold at night, really great heat in the day, the drought that comes with that. And if they're on the edge of society and kind of in the desert or near the desert, it's really easy to get lost. There aren't many paths, everywhere looks the same. Maybe that's true in parts of the Brecon Beacons too, but hey, um, being a sheep is hard basically in the Middle East. It's confusing, you're vulnerable, and you're only happy, and you're only safe 
when you are led by a shepherd who knows his way around, who knows where to find the food, who, who keeps the wells and the cisterns for collecting water in good repair, and who's brave, who can fend off the wolves when they come or other attackers. We should keep that in mind. We should keep that in mind through this series. I want to turn now to um, our passage in Numbers where we see Moses pray this incredible prayer that God's people will not be left like sheep without a shepherd. Now, why is Moses praying that prayer? Firstly, because he's going to die. We saw that at the beginning of the passage. He, sadly, tragically, like all of that generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt, out of the um, out of slavery, to be God's people, even Moses rebelled like the others. He failed eventually. And so Moses does not get to enter the promised land with the younger generation. He is going to see it from outside, from on the top of a mountain, and then he will die. And so that right raises the question, well, who's, who's going to lead God's people? They, they don't have a great track record of um, listening to God's words, of of going where they're told, of trusting God's plans for them. So if they don't have a good leader, what's going to happen to them? They're they're going to be like sheep without a shepherd, vulnerable, confused, and running off all over the place. So Moses prays that they will not be left like sheep without a shepherd. He cares for them. And the the first thing that I want to kind of unpack, not just drawing on this passage, but sort of everything up to this point in in the Bible, in brief, um, why are Israel so very much like sheep? Why are we like sheep for that matter? I want to dive into that just a little bit more so we can kind of build some connections between the image, Israel's history, and our daily lives. So firstly, we're like sheep because of what our first parents did. If if we were to go back to Genesis 3, we see Satan disguised as a serpent, sowing doubt, sowing doubt into the hearts of Adam and Eve. He does it first by twisting God's good commands, commands given for Adam and Eve's flourishing, And he calls God's truthfulness into question. Did God really say? And then, as Eve gets confused about what God actually said, Satan turns to outright lies, denial. He denies that God would punish their disobedience, and he promises that Adam and Eve would become like God by taking matters into their own hands to decide right and wrong for themselves. He paints God as a liar. He paints God as oppressive, as mean, withholding this good and desirable knowledge from them, knowledge that is power, because God wants to keep them in their place. God is jealous for his power. He doesn't want them to have any of it. And so Eve and Adam, along with her, come to distrust God's character. And they come to disbelieve his words. 
they turn their back on him and they believe empty promises, attractive lies instead. And somehow it seems that this same doubt, this same disbelief, this same distrust has become ingrained into the human heart ever since. Some animals are born with, well, instincts for all kinds of things. Instincts to hunt, say. Some dogs are born with an instinct to retrieve or to point to where the game is hiding or to round up sheep. But since the fall, every human being is born with a tragic instinct to distrust and disbelieve God. And so we stray. We are like foolish sheep, lost sheep, running away from the shepherd because we don't believe that the shepherd actually loves us and means us good. And we see this again and again and again, even through just those first four books of the Bible up to and including Numbers. Let's take Abraham, or Abram, as he was called in Genesis 12. He, when he, he left Canaan, he left the promised land and went to Egypt to escape a famine. Now, Abram's wife, Sarai, was so beautiful that Abram was afraid Pharaoh would kill him so he could take Sarai as his own wife. And so he tells Sarai to pretend that she is his sister and not his wife. But guess what? Then Pharaoh thinks, oh, great, beautiful woman, I'm married, I'll have her, takes her as his wife, and things are probably about to go very pear-shaped, but then God intervenes and sends a plague on Pharaoh and his household, and they somehow realize what's happening, that things aren't right, and then the truth comes out, that Abraham has lied to them. The whole, everyone basically, ends up worse off because Abraham did not trust his shepherd and because of his lies and his deceit and his running away. He's like a sheep who saw the wolf coming and instead of deciding to stay by the shepherd, who's the only one who can actually keep him safe, he runs off thinking, oh, I'll find a place to hide and it'll be okay. But it's not okay because the shepherd is the only one who can protect him. And maybe we're a bit like that at times. Maybe, you know, I think when I was working back as a tax advisor, there was the, the temptation to, to want to cover up or minimise my faith because I was afraid of the consequences. Maybe you might find that at school or in university or a whole host of places. We don't want people to make life hard for us because we believe the wrong things. We don't want them to reject us. We don't want to lose our jobs. But in, in that fear, it's almost as if we forget that God is our good shepherd. And so we, we cover up, we hold back from saying what we really think. We go along with the crowd just to make life easy. And we end up in a compromised position. We end up living a kind of double life, potentially, if we, if we follow this all the way. Like Abram, and always afraid, 
probably always somewhat ashamed as a result because of, of this double life we're living. And that inhibits our relationship with God and it inhibits our relationship with others because we no longer feel free to be open with God or open with anyone else about who we are and what's really going on. Now we're going to come back to that later. I'm not just going to leave that hanging on really negative note. But I wonder if you can see that same sheep-like tendency in us. We don't trust our true shepherd, and when danger comes, we run away. We try to find our own place to hide and make life feel easy and secure. Here's another way that we're, we're like sheep. We, we doubt God's purposes for us in the place that he has put us right now. We're like sheep who constantly wander off, thinking that the grass is greener over that hill, or the grass, oh, the grass was so much greener back the way I just came. This place that the shepherds led me to now, oh, the grass is just, it's thin and it's brown and it's tasteless and oh, I don't want to be here. Shepherd doesn't know what he's doing. We see that again and again and again with, with Israel. We see it when Moses goes to Pharaoh for the first time, says, let my people go. And then Pharaoh makes their slavery even harder. And the people immediately assume that God, his promises are false, that he's not looking out for them, that you know, everything's going to be utterly miserable. And we see it again when they're cornered by the Red Sea, Pharaoh's armies are coming. And though they've seen all the plagues on Egypt, they still don't trust God is going to get them out of it this time. And we see it when they're faced with no water or no food in the wilderness, and they grumble and they're saying, oh, if only we were back in Egypt with the watermelons and the cucumbers and this and that and the other, which they probably didn't have most of the time because they were slaves. And then when they get tired of having manna every day, they grumble again. And when they're on the brink of the promised land and they hear about the enemies that they must face in order to conquer the promised land, again, they don't trust God. They think God's just brought them up there to die. That he doesn't really love them. He doesn't mean what he says when he promises this land to them. They see the hardship in their current circumstances and they forget that they have a good shepherd. They distrust his promises. They disbelieve his good intentions. I wonder if you can see areas again in life where we might be tempted to do the same. Um, I, I, found, I found that desire, uh, sort of that tendency quite a lot. Um, this, my second job as a tax advisor, I've moved basically from a firm in Salisbury to a firm in Southampton to be close to home, get rid of a commute and a 2,000 quid a year season ticket, hopefully save up a bit more money for a deposit on a house, that kind of thing. Um, but the firm I landed in was a really miserable place, to be honest. We didn't know at the time, but the senior management, would, they were preparing to sell that department off. Um, and they were constantly sort of giving us clients, taking them away again. We were short staff, we were overworked, everyone was miserable. And it was really easy for me in that circumstance to forget the good aspects, forget the fact that I was now working really close to home. I wasn't paying 2,000 quid a year for a season ticket on the train. We, we were able to get a deposit on a, on a flat. Um, 
actually had really good managers who were really supportive despite the overall environment being pretty miserable. And that there were opportunities, I think, to, I think, grow in, or at least battle for holiness in an environment where every temptation is to be bitter and ungodly and complaining. So God was doing lots of good things in that place. But the temptation was just to dwell on the negative and think, oh, this is rubbish. I'm just miserable. If only I'd stayed in Salisbury. Maybe I should go back there. And I even got as far as emailing my former manager to see you. Could I come back six weeks in? And then, you know, oh, maybe I should move and go on to a different firm. And not trust that in that place, God has plans to do me good. So again, like sheep, we are, we are prone to stray because we don't trust our shepherd's good intentions and plans for us. What about provision for tomorrow? We see that with Israel, Exodus 16. They've got no food in the middle of the wilderness, but God gives them manna. He gives them this miraculous bread from heaven every day, except for the Sabbath. And they're just to collect enough for the day, or on, on Fridays, enough for Friday and Saturday. And trust that tomorrow and Sunday, there will be more bread. God will keep providing He's not going to leave them to starve. But some of the Israelites still go out and gather loads. They gather more than they need for one day because they don't trust God to provide for them tomorrow. And yet when tomorrow comes, the man is moldy and it's got maggots in it. And there's fresh, nice, new manna on the ground from God. They're like sheep who don't trust the shepherd to find fresh pasture tomorrow. So they try and overgraze on the pasture today, eat as much as they possibly can. When sheep do that, they end up, in, at least in the Middle East, leaving nothing. It's not going to grow back because they've eaten too much. Everyone's worse off. And I wonder, how easy is it for us to be like that? Again, you know, to, to worry about our finances, to worry about whether we're saving enough money, whether we can cover this or that thing going wrong, or how am I going to afford a new car in five years' time? Um, the temptation is, is not to be generous, is not to seek first God's kingdom, to hoard. But it's never going to be enough, because we can never cover every eventuality, every possible thing that might go wrong. And we're like straying sheep, not trusting our shepherd to provide for tomorrow. Finally, what about when we doubt God's invitation to draw near and when we doubt him giving us commands? Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, in Exodus 20 at Mount Sinai, Israel is invited to come to the foot of the mountain. There's this fire, the smoke as God descends on the mountain and he speaks out of it to give them the Ten Commandments. But as soon as they've heard it, Israel backs off. They're terrified. They don't want to hear God's voice speak to them anymore because they think they're going to die if they do. They think God in his holiness is going to lash out and destroy them, consume them. And so they tell Moses to go and receive the words instead. They don't trust God's loving, good intentions towards them. Even though he's rescued them from Egypt, 
even though he's destroyed their enemies at the Red Sea, even though he has provided for them in the wilderness with manna and water from the rock, even though he said to them in chapter 19, he wants them to be his treasured possession, they still don't trust that he means them good and that he loves them. And so they back off. And we we see through the, the subsequent history as well, they don't believe that his commands are there for their good and their flourishing. They either assume that if he really loved them, he wouldn't give them commands at all, or else he can't love them, he must be mean, and the commands are there as a means to sort of buy him off and sort of, like a slot machine, if we put enough money in, if we keep enough commands, we'll get what we need back out of him. But he doesn't really love them. He's just a sort of begrudging miser. They're like sheep who, who are afraid of their shepherd. And when the shepherd comes into the pen to feed them in the morning and then to let them out, they back off and they cower against the far wall instead of moving forward expectantly. And then instead of following him along unfamiliar paths, trusting that this is going to lead somewhere good, they bolt. They run off in the opposite direction because they think, no, he doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know what we need. He doesn't know what's good for us. Or if they do follow, it's grudgingly. And again, aren't we like that? Perhaps when God invites us to draw near to to receive grace and mercy and forgiveness. We hold back because we don't think he means it. We think, perhaps this time I have just sinned one time too many. I've gone too far. He's he must be fed up with me. He doesn't really love me. He's he's just gonna, you know, turn his back on me now. Or when we hear his commands and his his good pattern for flourishing in the world he has made, we don't trust his good intentions either particularly where his commands are countercultural and uncomfortable. And so we either refuse to obey, maybe that's with teaching on sexual purity or gender or marriage or giving or finances, that, you know, that's a struggle for me. Or if we follow, it's grudgingly because we think we have to earn something from him. We don't think that he really intends to do us good through his commands. We think they are there to oppress us. Like sheep, we are prone to stray. And the amazing thing that we see in Numbers 27 and throughout the whole of the Bible up to that point is that God continues to shepherd his people. He doesn't throw in the towel. He doesn't destroy them. He doesn't turn his back on them. He doesn't stop providing for them. Even the generation of Israelites that die in the wilderness, they're wandering around for 40 years. God continues to give them manna every single day and meets their needs, even after their sin and rebellion. And here, in in Numbers 27, he doesn't leave them to it. He gives them a shepherd, Joshua, even though he himself is actually the true shepherd. We get hints of that 
explicitly in Genesis 48 and 49 where Jacob calls God his shepherd. But we also see it hinted at throughout the whole of, of, of those books of the Bible in the way God looks after his people. He is the shepherd and he's not giving up on them, but he's also giving them an under-shepherd, if you like. And that's an act of his kindness too. He's accommodating himself to them because we struggle. We struggle to relate to a being who is invisible, who's eternal, who is uncreated, who is unlike us in so many ways. It's not just that we have this disposition in our hearts to disbelieve him. We struggle to relate to him because he's unlike us. And so he gives a human intermediary. He gives Joshua to stand in between and go between them. He's kind in their weakness and their frailty. He gives them what they need. He equips Joshua with his spirit, and you'll see in verse 18. And he gives Joshua his direction, you'll see in verse 21. Joshua has to go to the priest, and the priest will use the Urim to get decisions for him. God is going to shepherd his people and shepherd through Joshua. And the example of Joshua gives us reason to hope in another. One, can, one who can lead us into the promised land, as it were. Ancient Israel didn't fully conquer the promised land with Joshua. As soon as Joshua and his generation were dead, they gave up fighting the Canaanites. They settled for an easy life. They compromised with the Canaanite gods. And despite God giving more shepherds, David, good kings like Uzziah and Hezekiah, they ended up in exile. They never regained the promised land fully. Israel and then the church are a bit like nomads in the world. Strangers still, aliens still, on the edge of society, not really a part of it, not really belonging. We are on our way to the promised land, the new creation, the new Jerusalem. And we have another Joshua. Joshua is Jesus in Greek, Jesus is Joshua in Hebrew. Same name, different languages. And in Jesus, God has given us a man who is fully like us in every way, who can sympathize with us, who can deal gently with us, who has compassion on us. He is the perfect intermediary, perfectly accommodated to our needs. And yet, because he has conquered death and because he, has, he is God, He's not going to die on us like Moses did. He's not going to die on us like Joshua did or David or any of those that followed. We are not like sheep without a shepherd because we have the greater Joshua. We have Jesus. And he continues to be abundantly patient with all our struggles, all the struggles I listed earlier, all the ways that we are like sheep, 
He knows that because he's walked our road and he's, he's felt our temptations. And he still forgives us. So the long and the short of it is will we trust that we have a shepherd? We are like sheep. We know our tendency to run off and go astray. Will you trust that you have a loving shepherd, the greater Joshua, who's not going to die on you, who understands your every struggle, who will lead you through this nomad-like, pilgrim-like life in a world where we are different and out of place? And who will bring us home? Can I ask as well, how much happier would we be? How much happier would we be if we trusted him that the grass isn't greener on the other side? That the place where he has put us right now is the place we are meant to be? How much happier would we be if we spent a little time each day, for example, praying to give thanks for the things that are good in our lives right now and asking him for help to be content instead of always looking around to see where we could go instead? How much happier might we be in, in the workplace, say, when we're afraid of what people will think if they knew what we really believed? If instead of going in timidly, going along with everyone else, always worrying about what people think, if we ask God to help us love our friends and colleagues so much, so well, that even if they do learn that we disagree with them on like really controversial areas of life and morality, they will have no grounds to claim that we hate them. They will have no grounds to think that we are bigoted. They will have every reason to believe that we desire good for them because of the way we love them. How much better to be on the front foot, trusting our shepherd, trusting him to provide for our needs if things do go pear-shaped, and seeking his help to love the people around us. And when we get it wrong, when we do fail, you will still forgive. Let me, let me sum this up by saying that the, the, Christian, the Christian life is a process, if you like, of growing to trust our shepherd. We start out really struggling to trust him. When we die, we will still struggle to trust him. But as each day goes by, he will show us more and more of his goodness, more and more of his faithfulness in hard circumstances. And he will help us to trust him. Sometimes we need to persevere in order to see his faithfulness coming through for us. But it is coming because he is a good shepherd. So let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you that you have never left your people with like sheep without a shepherd. Father, we are so sheep-like. We are so prone to wander off from you, run away from you, distrust you. Even though you are so good, and yet you keep on shepherding us. And you have given us the perfect man, God-man, to go between us and you, to stand and shepherd the flock. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Please would you help us today to trust him just that little bit more, whether that's with danger and, and things that we fear. Lord, whether that's with provision for tomorrow, whether that's with seeing the good that you're doing us or trusting in the good you're doing us in our circumstances right now, whether that's believing that your commands are meant for our good. Help us to trust you that little bit more today. We ask for your glory. Amen.